We increasingly hear the term white saviorism on social media and other forums calling out really egregious examples of white individuals going around places often on the African continent portraying themselves as saving people through photos, through school programs, where they're building schools or, or whatnot. But I think what gets easily lost in those examples are the ways in which, in a very everyday manner, white saviorism in its power, in its privilege, in the way it has shaped and continues to shape development institutions, continues to perpetuate serious problems. And so in their book, White Saberism in International Development, Theories, Practices, and Lived Experiences, Temriz Khan, Dixon Kanakulia, and Micah Sondarji do a really great job of breaking this down and showing how broad this problem is. And it was for that reason I was really eager and delighted to have them on the podcast to talk about this. So in this episode, we cover how deep white saviorism goes and talk about really interesting examples in their book about how you can be both brown and a white savior. So I hope you are intrigued to listen. Thank you so much, Dixon, Temries, and Micah, for finding the time for this conversation. And what I'd love to start with is the title of the book being White Saviorism and International Development, Theories, Practices, and Lived Experiences. What's very interesting there is the emphasis on lived experiences, which often gets left out. And so I'd love to hear from you all your own experiences that have informed this book and how it came about. I came across long time ago, the organization No White Saviors, which is doing incredible work in making white supremacy and racial hierarchies known in the field of international development. I would say even Global South observers have been calling out the white savior complex and white savior attitudes for years, just not much in academia. So I reached out to No White Saviors and they referred me to this amazing scholar, Dixon Kanakulia, who was also interested in those issues. And so we started talking and I was also working with Temriz on other stuff. And so she jumped in very, very quickly. And then we organized the whole thing together. As Mike has mentioned, our concern was that this discussion was going on in the mainly activist space and social media, but it was lacking in the, in the, the academia and the organized discourses where the women workers for tomorrow are being trained and they don't hear these voices. There are lecture rooms and seminar rooms and things like that. So we wanted this voice to come out there. And all of us come from a background that we really want to see justice in the world. So yeah, I think that's crucial. It's the fact that voices were there. They were just not listened to. Because in a way, I think academics and practitioners will only listen to certain voices and, and certain narratives. Personally, I've been a development practitioner for almost 25 years now. And so it was very much a white savior attitude throughout my career, which one didn't ever necessarily pick up at the time. And it's only now that there's been just so much emphasis on the idea of how development aid is, should change that this idea actually is becoming much more prominent, even though it was always there for, for decades. 
So I think bringing it to the fore through our experiences, mine as a practitioner, Dixon and Micah's as academics, we wanted people like ourselves to speak more about their personal experiences in the sector as academics, as practitioners, as thinkers, activists, etc. And uh, yeah, like Micah says, I mean, there are a lot of voices out there who've been saying things for a long time, but nobody's bothering to listen. So I think with this book, that's that's been our main objective. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I'm curious how you guys chose to, how you framed the book to really attract and position it to that type of audience. I think we had multiple audiences in mind when we came up with this. I think one of the things we wanted was the book to be very accessible to all sorts of people. We didn't want this to be a purely academic volume, also because international development itself isn't academic. It's a very hands-on, practical field. So the idea was to try and get voices from the global south from all sorts of fields. And it was actually Micah's idea to bring in the lived experiences because we had practitioners who could write for us, but there was something about actually people just documenting their own stories in their own words. So we thought that would be a great way to broaden our audience as well and not just keep it as a very formal academic structure, but actually have this relate to people who have been part of the of the international development sector at the practitioner level, at the grassroots level in their own countries. We decided that we should make the language simpler, accessible, and that's a key aspect. So if you read the book, the language is simple, and we really decided consciously to make it accessible, such that everyone can really read it in the comfort of their room, and they really get the language. And People telling their stories is a powerful tool today. We're living in the age of social media. We wanted those voices to come out. Of course, not denying the fact that we need the academic part, but at the same time, if you look at the book, much of it is talking about the experience of the people. And perhaps on that, as we talk about this term white saviorism, I'd be curious if there's a story or a lived experience you can speak to that conveys or encapsulates some of the what it means, white saviorism. We do have sort of a theoretical definition of what, how we, the three of us, saw this book to define white saviorism. And that was a very Eurocentric view of people coming from the West to save the rest. But I think in our own experiences, white saviorism, I know for me, has been the international donor agencies, all from white global North countries coming into my country, Pakistan. And on the pretext that I mean, nobody uses that word, we've come to save you anymore, but the pretext is that you don't know what is good for you, and we know what is good for you. As a result, we will tell you what to do and how to do it, and you will be rewarded for that, and you will be saved from your miserable existence. So this is how, at least in my world, programs were designed, money flowed out, programs were implemented, and they failed because that's... It wasn't the right approach, obviously, to it. But I think Dixon has also articulated this in his, his piece in the, in the book, the white person coming into Africa and save the orphans. So that is really how I think the conventional world recognizes white saviorism, but we broaden that a lot to include the multilateral aid system in this and about how they perceive themselves to be better than everybody else and only they can solve the world's problems, problems of the global south. 
So I think that's how we framed and viewed white saviorism, not only in our experience of working with international aid agencies and NGOs and, and the like, but also how they view us. Yeah, I think it's important to know to know that we define it as two things. So first, it's a state of mind or a narrative. And that's often what we talk about. Oh, that white person like René Bach going to Uganda, opening a hospital, this white 20-year missionary who didn't have any medical experience who opened a hospital and more than 300 children ended up dying under care. So that's kind of like the white savior attitude. So that state of mind of white people thinking they're superior, but also a concrete unequal power structure between the global north and the global south. So that's really what we want to emphasize. Some chapters focus on the narrative of white saviors, individual white saviors. Some chapters focus on the overarching structure, meaning that, for example, one of the chapters talks about how Western mining companies will go and exploit land and exploit people to make money. But then on the other side, the countries where they're from are going to do development projects on the other side and like promote sovereignty and people access to the land. So this is quite ironic. So this is the, the, the big irony of white Western people trying to help racialize global South people, while on the other hand, because of the capitalist, patriarchal, and colonial structure we live in, are still perpetuating exploitation, dispossession, and it's a really broad structure. That's why it's complicated to summarize it in, in a sentence. Yeah, that's really helpful. And as you say, there's those two pieces of it. There's this mentality, and that's what we normally associate with white saviorism. It's only enabled or perpetuated through the power structures. But I'm curious how you see that second piece kind of stand alone from the first. And would you still classify that, so that oiling company, as as white saviorism as well? What I want to draw attention to is the term complex. So we had to go back and forth defining that. It's not only a psychological complex, but also a complex institutional setup. I the second part is trying to capture the, the institutional complexities that are involved, that sometimes are disguised. And when you, if you don't get an organized text like this, a book that can really lay it down clearly, you lose the, the, the complexity, which has now turned into an industry of its own. So the Serbia comes into really perpetually benefit from that institutional center, the power structure. For example, the example she gave of a young missionary coming to Africa and ended up killing many students. When there's no Serbia were taking Rene to court in the U.S., there was a whole article written to clear her name in the New York, you can imagine. A lot of money spent to write about her, to try to show that she really meant good. And there's so many stories. The, the aim was to smoothen it out for her. That's how complex it is. It goes all the way to the, to the upper currents of power in the world. So I think what it highlights is the ways in which behind the individual has to rest a whole system and structure of both what such an individual can even conceive and be taught to think that they could have such a trip and do such things. But similarly, all the levels of even details of visa access to then entering such a country, performing such things without being questioned. It takes a whole system of protection. If I could just add to that, what Dixon is saying is that we did discuss this a lot, whether we should call the book originally, it was white savior complex. And then we said, well, what about white saviorism? Because they are two different things. And we had to be very clear about what we wanted to, to convey. But that is an important distinction yet to make, because we have individuals 
who think they really are white saviors. And then you've got institutions like the multilaterals and the bilateral aid agencies of the world that imbibe white saviorism in their ethos and their objectives. And everybody who works with them thinks that they are the white saviors. So it's sort of a double-edged barrel. You've got institutions that perpetuate the myth that they as institutions are the only ones who can help the rest of the world out of poverty and what have you. And then all the individuals who work in those institutions, individuals that a lot of our, our authors have documented experiencing with as individuals, how the institution imbibes the white savior complex on them. So you work with the institution, the institution thinks they're white saviors, everybody who works in those institutions by default think that they are also white saviors. And then that sort of goes down the line that way. And really interesting, Temri, is when you mentioned this piece around the ways in which the complex itself, an almost industrial complex, imbibes and then infuses their own staff with such a mentality. I'm curious from your practice experiences where where you've seen the consequences of that when it's come to the effectiveness of these programs? I mean, that's a huge impact on the effectiveness because everybody who comes in comes in with obviously an institutional agenda. And that institutional agenda has to be followed no matter what, just because of the immense power that that institution holds behind them. And so they don't really see the consequences then. So for instance, I've worked with a multitude of rotating staff members in donor agencies who there's a turnover every two years. There's a new posting in in that, whether it's ambassadorial, whether it's head of aid, whether it's a program staff person. And none of them have ever come in with the idea that, okay, this is a new country for us. We really don't know anything about it. And we would like to piggyback on the country itself to see what we can learn and what the best way to interact with, with them would be. No, they don't come in with that attitude. They come in with the institutional attitude that this is what we have to do. This is what we're here to do. We're going to do it for two years, then we're going to leave, and we're going to do it somewhere else for another two years. And that basically doesn't talk to impact. It doesn't talk to efficiency. It doesn't talk to effectiveness. It doesn't even talk to cultural relatability. And obviously, everybody you're interacting with, you're the same person, but you're constantly interacting with a different roster of people who are coming in with the same attitudes and you're unable to get through to them. This is why, at least in my experience, every program that I have worked on, I could safely say has been declared a failure. Whether it's a five-year development program for women's empowerment, whether it's been a political participation program, whether it's been microcredit or what have you, none of it has been able to stick. And then people wonder why they have all these expensive evaluations that they do. And we have a chapter on evaluations as well. And all these evaluations are done by foreigners, not by people in their own country to evaluate the work of others. Our work is evaluated by others and their work is evaluated by themselves. So we actually eventually don't reach any conclusion except keep running around in circles. So I think this perpetuation really is having a serious impact on efficiency effectiveness and basically just the objective of development programming as a whole like we are literally running around in circles and one more interesting thing i just like to put is that i think the response to the book is the global north audience is really being blown away by this because they're finally being told that you are you are white saviors even though they've never heard that before 
Yeah, the way you, the way Tamara underlines impact is very important, and it goes back to something Dixon said earlier about intentions. Is that it's good intentions are really nice, and I must admit I agree with that. But a lot of failures have been happening since the inception. Colonization offices became development office, and so the same mindset was perpetuating. And so the the interesting thing with this book is that. For years, we've been talking about failures. Everyone has been talking about the failures of development, top-down policies, one-size-fits-all policies, and all that. But rare are those scholars or practitioners, like Tamariza said, who have linked that to this attitude of white saviorism. A lot of the failures in the field are based on the idea or the fact that people were not listened to, that Western people came in Global South countries and with this mindset of, we know best. You should read the whole book, but I think the foreword by Olivia Alasso and Wendy Namatovu is, is very interesting in that. They underline how white saviorism is based on white supremacy and, and this idea of elevating white people in terms of they are better, they are modern, they are civilized, but also they know best for other people, which... I think is an overarching structure. It's one of the fundamental aspects of the field of development. Now, Michael, what you mentioned, this study of white saviorism is the success of coloniality, colonial studies. So they just literally just took over and sat in the chair where the colonial master was. And the psychology and the energy and everything is still the same. Sometimes even they, when they try to pretend to be listening, it's just cosmetic. It's not really genuine help these people really get themselves out of the situation they're in. And that's the root of the problem, because no one wants to acknowledge that probably something's wrong. Billions and billions of money have been pumped in for years and years, but the situation doesn't change. Things are the same. The narrative or the mindset is the same. We used to call Global South countries uncivilized countries, and the Global North as civilized. And one of the indigenous scholars who wrote in that book is specific on that, the narrative of even colonizers were saying we are here to save the souls of indigenous people. So today we change the word civilized to develop. But it's the same hierarchy, it's the same ladder of un uncivilized countries becoming civilized. From now it's undeveloped or in development countries becoming developed. What I find really helpful with what you have shared in the book is this way in which you go beyond the incentives and the intentions of the individual to look to how that individual can sit into a system which means that they will perpetuate the problem. So I think Tim Reeser's mm -hmm. example of how structurally the fact that these multilaterals have designed a setup where every two to three years, people will be moving to completely new continents or countries and cultures. And that's considered acceptable in its structure, means that even if you are well-intentioned, you are going to be surrounded with both institutional programs and belief systems, as well as details like that, which mean that you'll be going to, let's say, a place like Kenya, and have it defined as a hardship country, which itself is so degrading and rude to the people who live here, for whom it's their home and their country. And so there's so many levels at which you kind of become enveloped by the system. And I think that your book does a lot to try to highlight at how many levels it operates. <laughs> We've highlighted this in the book as well, and that's the issue of brown saviorism, right? 
So it's the issue of saviorism, right? Let's take the race out of it for now. It's the idea that somebody is always better than somebody else. And somebody has the ability to take somebody else out of their misery, right? And they're the only ones who can. So this idea of white saviorism is so entrenched and so powerful that it's actually influenced entire series of saviors among other cultures and races as well. So one of our contributors has spoken about brown saviorism, that people in, let's say, South Asian countries behave in exactly the same way with their lower counterparts than a white person would with a brown person or with a black person, right? Because it's all about power. So I'm more powerful than you are. So I have the, the ability to save you or to reward you or to do better for you. So the way that white saviorism works is that it's the internal power structure that works in institutions and that works on your mentality and anyone who feels that they belong to that institution imbibes that power as well. So it doesn't matter what color you are. I know we've had people in Pakistan who've been posted, they've been brown, they've been black, but they represent a large donor. And they behave with us in exactly the same way that their white colleagues would. So that's the influence that this system has is immense because I think it transcends race then. It transcends culture. It's just how you manifest the idea that you just somehow happen to be better than the other person because you happen to belong to a more powerful country or institution. So I think that's mm. a really important point to reflect on. That And when it comes to that, I'm curious why it was still important to label it as white saviorism. <laughs> as opposed to, let's say, saviorism, or it's a power complex. Well, I think that's interesting, because as Temri said, it's not only white people. And, and there's also, as her chapter mentions, but also Leila Benadruja's chapter demonstrates, it's also linked to patriarchy. So white saviorism or, or white supremacy is not about white people. It's about elevating people of white descent or elevating Western countries or white, historically white countries, historically colonizing countries as better and more modern and all that. So that structure is not about individual white people. It's about how the system is based. Who do we put at the top of the hierarchy? So as Temri said, someone from Pakistani descent born in Canada could go to Kenya and act the same way as a white person would. Uh, mixed race people can uh, perpetuate degrading narratives and degrading stories. Global South NGOs can perpetuate things that are based on degrading images. So it's really not about white people as individually being bad people. It's about everyone supporting a structure of colonial and racist hierarchy. And even a lot of people in the Global South are, are, are integrating that hierarchy in their minds, which makes it even more powerful. That's how post-colonial structures work. It's that, yes, colonizers are gone, but then the structure, this hierarchy in our minds of who deserves agency, who has a right to talk, is in our minds. That's why it's very important. That's why we need to dismantle it as a structure. So I think it's also why white people, mostly from what we've heard, have not been mad about that. Because we're not saying you're a bad person. We're just saying you're participating in a structure by your practice, by your actions. So yes, might you should maybe have guilt about some of the actions you did, but it's not just the idea of you changing as an individual. It's it's you changing so that the structure changes. I wanted to mention that we shouldn't, we should, uh, the, the listener should be careful 
we are not on, a, on an anti-racist crusade here. As Temerys mentioned, it's not about racism. You find people who are black in the South treating others with that attitude. And uh, it is entrenched because of this abuse which has been going on for quite a long time. It has uh, damaged the psychology and attitude of these people. And as you say, who should be on top of the hierarchy? It's about positioning, putting someone above the other, and it impedes the ability of the individual, the people who are being served, to really grow their ability to come out of what they are in. So the help or the assistance should have come and enable them to get up, but becomes perpetuated because those people never really get the ability to believe in themselves and act, and their agency is allowed to come out. Yes, thank, thank you, Dixon, for emphasizing that. What's helpful in that framing is someone like myself, who had parents who grew up in India but was born in Canada and grew up in the UK, I have similarly imbibed these white savior notions. And so when it comes to, let's say, working in a place like India or in Kenya, there's actually an interestingly dangerous role I can play in seemingly not being white but nonetheless carrying a lot of those ideals. And as you say, sometimes those can be the worst perpetrators. I would just caution with that, though. I think, like Micah says, it's not about white, but like you said, Arnav, it is still, that is, we need to call it that because that's where it begins from. Because in a lot of cases, this whole idea that, oh, look, other people also from the global south behave in the same way is something that's used to weaponize, it's weaponized against us, Right. To show that, oh, see, we told you, they are weak, they do have problems. And I think we need to be cautious about that because the ori- this originated in the global north, right? The whole idea of colonialism behind it all originated in the global north. And it's just filtered down mm. from there. So I think, yes, you're absolutely right. This is white saviorism. We're talking about how powerful its influence is that it has now taken over other parts of the globe as well. So I think the idea that we need to emphasize where it originated from, that white saviorism really is something that still exists in the global north, is important to do as well. Mm. It's not that white saviorism is a new concept. It's explicitly what colonialism was about. The narrative changed when it became development because of many different incentives, but nonetheless has persisted. And so in that sense, it's very much where it emanates from. Exactly. <laughs> Perhaps a shift to another piece that I found very interesting about the way you formulated this book is the great variety in authors. And I'd love to hear how you thought about collecting those different theories and uh, lived experiences. There is- Our very first thought about this book was that this is not going to include anyone from the global north. I mean, that was the underpinning of the book in no shape or form. So we were very clear and explicit about that. So that was our main, that was the foundation of it because these were the voices we wanted to hear. So we were very fortunate to get a really good group of academics and practitioners 
And then we sent out an open call for testimonial for our lived experiences section, which was a public call, which we publicized over social media and through our networks. And we got a good number of submissions here, including some from white saviors themselves who did not heed to the call that this is only Global South. <laughs> so they felt that, no, our voices still need to be heard. So that was very interesting. So that's how we came up with this group of very interesting, eclectic scholars, practitioners, and actual activists and workers in the field. And we went from there and we told them, write what you want. We're not going to give you any criteria. We have a word limit. That's about it. But you write what you want, how you want, because we just felt it has to come from the heart. This was not something we were looking for that had to be academically perfect. And I think that was one of our biggest advantages in terms of what eventually was produced. Yeah, this was very important to us. And we had to discuss it with the editor, Daraja Press, who publishes activists as well as academics and all that. But then having all of that in the same book was quite hard for the reviewers to grapple with and, and understand. And I think for us, that's one of the main advantage or value added of that book is that we gathered people from literally all continents of the Global South and with narratives that are dear to their heart and with stories and testimonies and academic articles and the mix of the two. And so it's an interesting book based on a very interesting process as well. Yeah, really living by the sounds of it, the notion of giving over that power. When it comes to a voice you felt that, that was different, I'm curious if there's an experience or a chapter in the book that resonates strongly with yourselves. I think for me, it was the first chapter written by an indigenous elder from Canada, Marcelo. And it was a very difficult read for us initially because it really delved into the historical elements of the way the indigenous population was colonized way, way back when, and how it was then eliminated almost, and how they, how the indigenous culture viewed themselves and viewed their own environment. And I think that's a voice that definitely in North America is completely unheard and needs to be heard. And I think we're very fortunate to get that in because it's all about global south and development, right? But we also forget that indigenous populations around the world are as much a part of this, if not more, and their voice is never heard. It sets the tone for us, because I think that's when white saviorism began in the 1600s with Christopher Columbus coming in and discovering the great mm. white north. Yeah, it goes back to the origins of white saviorism. For me, I guess, two things. There's at least three chapters dealing with intersectional slash feminist aspects of white saviors. So Temriz's chapter, Leila's chapter, and Radasha's chapter, uh, putting, like underlining how white women are not outside of that structure. Even if women in general are oppressed by some systems of patriarchy, we can also reproduce other types of systems of power. The chapter by the Mexican activist and thinker Fernando Duarte is interesting on, on green colonialism because it talks to what we were talking earlier about intentions. So that environmentalists trying to protect the fish or, or the environment in some places are doing it with a colonial mindset telling local people or in Canada, telling indigenous communities how to protect the environment, where we should actually learn from indigenous communities and global South communities about how to protect the environment because it is Western actors who have destroyed that environment. So I think that he really puts this irony of a system and a mindset versus good intentions. 
My name is in the book, Dealing with Brown Saviors. We already mentioned it. It's more of a psychosocial exploration of how white saviorism ends up being transmitted to people who are victims and then they become, I don't know, what, what can we use? They, they, are, they get abused and they become abusers themselves. So mm. they perpetuate it and some of them are not even aware of what they're doing. What I hear from all three of your different pieces is this way in which white saviorism goes far beyond those operating in the global south. It relates to those in Canada and the US and the indigenous communities that have been wiped out and continue to be. And then similarly, the ways in which, particularly with this focus on climate change, in places like Kenya, as an example, who has controlled conservation, who gets to lead that discussion, and the ways in which often indigenous communities will be pitted as those most opposed, when in fact, as you said, Micah, they have been the ones who only actually understood how to do it well. With the time we have left, I'd love to shift to this piece around action. And I'd be curious what your different calls to action are from the book. I think that's an interesting point. And for me, when I give talks on quote unquote decolonizing development, and, and I'm sure Temeriz, it's the same for you, everyone asks for solutions. What can we do? What can I do as an individual? And it's an interesting question. However, I think the book addresses that in pointing at that structure, meaning that the main thing we can do right now is deconstruct or dismantle white saviorism in our mind, call out the structure of white saviorism in order for it to, to be dismantled. There's no ready-made solution. There's only a long, very long and hard process of reckoning with our colonial legacy, trying to do better and calling out in white spaces, in non-white spaces, foods and mindsets that can reproduce that structure. It's so complex that we didn't want to go into that because otherwise we would appear like we have this really critical take on it. And then here are like 10 ready-made solutions. So I think for me, that's what I tell people is start by educating yourself, educating your peers, trying to do better, trying to not use colonial or white saviorism language. Yeah, we who are in the academic world, we are pressurized to provide quick fix solutions. Let's do ABCD. That's the same mistake that is made perpetually in the development industry, trying to solve something which you have not, first of all, understood. So, as you can see from the questions you have asked us, it is so complex that it requires someone to first understand what is really going on and such that the solution. So, so what we want is the discussion to start so that people realize there's something that we need to really to focus on. We didn't mm -hmm. really want to get another volume of pages with a, some suggested solutions which are half-baked and they really don't do much. They don't help. They are just uh, to satisfy ourselves psychologically that we put in something there. And I think the book puts forward a solution, which is let's put Global South voices first. <laughs> let's listen. Also, it's very soon for solution. I mean, these discussions have barely just begun. People are still not catching on to them. A lot of them are still oblivious to these. Or if they are not, then they just pretend it's not happening, right? So it's a long, long, slow, arduous process. And like Micah said, even I keep getting asked, so what's the solution then if it's not good? Like, we're not magicians. Maybe there isn't a solution to it. Have you ever thought about that? Not everything needs to have a solution. Mm -hmm. But like Dixon says, it's a discussion that we want to start. And until we have more and more of these discussions and fight it out, literally, we're barely going to get a direction, forget about a solution. 
so yeah, that's our biggest hope for the three of us that this book just generates some discussion or an acceptance of the fact that white saviorism still very much exists in society as a whole. And let me quote the great Tamriz Khan in the conclusion of our book. She says, we believe Western countries and organizations need to recognize their role in the perpetuation of exploitation and devaluation of global South communities. Still, we are uncertain of where this realization can lead. Useful. And I think what's really great on a book about white saviorism, you've chosen not to fall into the easy trap of white saviorism to give quick fixes. What I'd love to get a sense of is to the white saviors out there, what is the incentive that they have to change what they do? The power structures that exist continue to benefit them. They get the cushy salary, the jobs. They get to believe that what they're doing is impactful. What is the incentive for them to take off that veil and see reality? That is an excellent question. And that's something literally I want an answer to that myself, for instance. But there's nothing in it for them. Let's be really honest, right? I mean, the cushy salaries, the postings, the power, all that. I mean, what we're asking is that initially you need to lose all that. And eventually you need to equalize it. Okay, It's not fair to tell somebody just give up everything and give it all to us. What we're talking about is equalizing the playing field, leveling the playing field. So that everybody gets the same, everybody is able to talk at the same level. That nobody is shouted down. So we want exactly the same level of power and decision-making levels and access to resources that the others do, right? So, okay, don't give up your job, but at least give up some of it to us. I mean, one of the other issues is that a lot of, Global North organizations are taking up the civic space of the Global South through their INGOs, opening country offices. Why do you need to do that? Let us open our own organizations in our own countries. Why do you have to come in and do that? So I think it's a matter of equalizing the status, which means they have to give up something, maybe not all of it, but some of it. And that's what we have to sit and talk about. Like with every structure of power, I think it's a good question because everyone, someone has to lose power. It's a question of who has power, who delegates power, who is ready to give that up a little bit. In the field of development, as I said, people are, quote unquote, good people, interested in social justice. So I think we have an argument here to say, you're against inequality, you're trying to work for a better world. Well, first, the way you've been doing it has been unsuccessful, to say the least. And if you want to promote justice, you should promote it in a certain way. Apart from that, my colleagues have answered it from the a power dynamics angle. The fact that they have failed for miserably for so many years should be the incentive. So many slogans that have come up from experts, from Harvard, from wherever, and they have fallen on their faces every time, every take five years, ten years, and something comes up and it fails. So for me, I would think that there is room for everyone. Why should you sit on five chairs when you can reach five one? And you end up not even feeling those, even the one chair you claim you, you have. Because when you raise yourself up as a savior, who can really fit that building of a savior? None of us really can. 
So it's better we allow each one to bring their hands on the deck and we steer this ship of our world to the right direction. Perhaps accompanied with it is the call to those of the global south to better see how endemic these structures are, can encourage, can create more spaces to challenge, to push back, to force white saviors to reflect on their reality. As we look to close this, I'd love for people to know where they can find the book, where they can also follow your workings and, and your writings and thoughts. Book is available online at the publisher's website. So that's www.darajapress.com, D-A-R-A-J-A press, all one word, dot com. The book is also available in, so you can download it if you like, as well as order a print copy. And uh, Micah, Dixon, and I are also available online on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you can check us out there, that will be great. <laughs> Visions are kusim kwa ocean. He papa, he me fugo kwa aquarium papas. See four walls a church, stadium, state Thank you for listening. And if you found that of interest, I highly recommend finding their book, which you'll find in the show notes, with a collection of different voices, both academic but also personal stories of lived experience, it's a really engaging read. If I had to pull one takeaway and perhaps an antidote to white saviorism, the activist Leela Watson said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And I think in many ways, that's the ethos we should be carrying in this space. And normally I'd pitch the social medias, but I've been terrible at them. So instead, perhaps a call out. If there's someone who wants to contribute to the podcast and help me grow the audience and really the engagement on this topic, please feel free to reach out on social media and I look forward to it. <laughs>